We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking olympics musa champions league the loss of passion dk ronaldo private benjamin megan harry josie iggy and so much more but first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, March 15th in the year 2021? I am doing well, although I must confess it was a bit of a mixed bag for the stat man uh, this past weekend. What Some happened, buddy? Uh, do you want to start with the good or the bad? I always like to start with the bad. Well, it's March, which means it's NCAA tournament time. Mm. It gets underway later this week. Uh, Michigan had a terrific regular season. We are a one seed in the East region. Uh, we would have been one of the top contenders to win the national title. But uh, we found out this weekend our, our star player, uh, senior forward Isaiah Livers, is likely to miss the tournament due to uh, an ankle injury, which took all the wind out of my sails. I was so excited for this tournament this year. And now I think we'll be lucky to get to the Sweet 16. Does your ranking, is it based on something that you did? I mean, for example, this, this ankle injury, would this have happened after they, they were seated in that place? No, it, it, the news broke before. So there was some question about whether the committee would take that into consideration, but they still rewarded us for the season that we had. Um, Livers is uh, officially out indefinitely. There's still a possibility he might come back at some point during the tournament. So I guess they didn't want to penalize us without knowing for sure that he's going to miss the whole thing. Well, this, this should come as no surprise to people out there. The way I read this and see this is Michigan already capitulating and already you know, setting up an excuse as to why they're not going to do anything in this tournament. Hey, speaking of people in the tournament, uh, it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that my Rutgers Scarlet Knights for the first time since 1991, coincidence, the year that I left school, maybe, maybe not, the first time since 1991, the men's basketball team has qualified for the uh, the tournament. Am I wrong? I think I'm right. I think I'm right. And if I'm wrong, it's okay. Just let me let me go. Let me go with it. No, I think I'm right. Uh, so you're in big trouble, my friend. My Scarlet Knights are going to come and roll all over you. Uh, so that was the bad. Uh, Michigan does uh, begin uh, this upcoming Saturday against the winner of the play-in game between Mount St. Mary's and Texas Southern. So uh, tune into that. Um, but uh, there was well, what some was good. What was the good? Look at me. Let's let's get some good here. Well, I don't know if you recall, but uh, last week when we were discussing the notorious Big, 
I yes. mentioned that uh, my favorite rapper is a guy named Nas. Mm. And Nas won a Grammy uh, this weekend, the first of his career. He had been nominated 14 times before and never won. He was the Susan Lucci of the rap Grammy category. But uh, he won for his album King's Disease, which in, in true Grammy fashion, mind you, is like his seventh best album of his career. But this is the one that wins. It's like Martin Scorsese winning an Oscar for The Departed. Uh, but nevertheless, I was very happy to see that Nas finally taking home a Grammy. Oh, well, congratulations to Mr. Nas um, and his uh, and his feet. I'm sure it's well-deserved. I, I have not listened to his latest uh, effort, but I'm sure that it's uh, that it's certainly worthy of a uh, of a Grammy. I, I, I watched them. There was a time, Mossy, I mean, being the music guy that I am, where it, it, it was such a, these were special nights. See, the Grammys, the American Music Awards, the MTV Music Awards, all that kind of stuff. And then as is, you know, as is the case often, you, you grow up, uh, your musical tastes either don't evolve um, uh, or change to stuff that isn't necessarily going to be on the Grammys. And so there, the, the amount of acts uh, that, I, that I knew uh, or the amount of songs that I knew were few and far between. It doesn't mean I, I can't appreciate you know, someone like, uh, uh, like Haim, I think it was, uh, that, that played. They were good. Um, her, I had seen previously on one of the award shows. Um, so I'm glad I saw that she won. And then it was, there was, it was somebody else. Uh, who's the, um, who's the new super group that was there that played? Um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, the soul something or other. Hold on. We're going to get it here from, uh, from our chat. God, we should have been prepared with this BTS. Yeah. Soul silk. No, not, not BTS. <laughs> The Soul Silk. I thought they were uh, they were pretty good. Bruno Mars, I think, is one of the uh, the members of that uh, uh, thing, and he's an incredibly talented guy. So all in all, I mean, you know, it's it's hard for me to get uh, jacked up. And I thought that the the tribute section, which is always going to cause some controversy, I thought that you could have had somebody there for how important and influential someone like Eddie Van Halen was, other than just show him playing. I think you could have had somebody that was physically there with the amount of guitarists that we have and the amount and the generations now that have been influenced by him. It would have been nice to actually see somebody, but that would have required some more hard rockish type of, uh, of people being involved. And we know that the Grammys are no longer about that anymore. Okay. Uh, Mossy, uh, did you watch anything, uh, this week besides the, uh, the awards? Only thing new is I've started on this money heist. Uh, as you know, I've been on this international tip the last mm -hmm. few weeks. You know, this is a Spanish show about a, a bank robbery in Madrid. And uh, so a few episodes into that, enjoying it so far. All right. Sorry. It's, it's called Silk Sonic, I guess. Whatever. Okay. But yeah, uh, is, we've been informed. Uh, this is so. Luis Aguilar, who is having an absolute shocker in trying to convey this piece of information to you. All right. Let's see what I, what I watched this week. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things. The the final four episodes. So the not the final four episodes. There's only four episodes of Alan versus Pharaoh on HBO. Oh, my God. It is. It is nuts, uh, and, and you have to see it if you don't know um, about the uh, the case against Woody Allen uh, that dates back to the '90s, and uh, you know his 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 uh, daughter and his son and his family are involved in in this uh, in this documentary, and it's just harrowing, harrowing. But it's uh, four episodes, so now they're all out, so you can binge it if you want from start to finish. So I saw that, uh, which I highly recommend. Give me Danger, which is a documentary about. Um, uh, Iggy Pop and Iggy and the Stooges, a seminal type of band out of Detroit. 
and uh, their strange pathway that they took to success and how influence influential they were. I, I don't I don't like their music necessarily, um, but I liked the documentary. And as I've said many, many times, if you don't even know or like the, the, the music that it's talking about, if you can still enjoy a documentary, that's the mark of a, a good documentary. So that's a good one that I'd recommend. And just to see how he approached life and how he approached music and how that band influenced so many others along the way and their strange pathway that they took to stardom. Uh, I thought it was really, really good. And then an old school type of thing. I've gone, been going back and, and rewatching some things that I saw back in the day. Private Benjamin is a movie starring Goldie Hawn and it was, you know, her, I mean, her, her biggest hit and it kind of mirrors the, the movie stripes in that, you know, she was a, a pampered, rich young woman and she falls into the army and then finds her way in that uh, in, in that sector it's a very strange movie i didn't realize how strange it was and unless you've seen it you you won't know but uh, it's well worth it um it holds up in a strange way not in that it would be the same movie today but i didn't realize how nuanced it was and i thought it was much more of a slapstick type of comedy and it's and it's not. So that was an interesting thing to go back to a movie who I had, that I had seen a long time ago and to just see it in a very, very different way. That sometimes happens. It doesn't always happen. So three recommendations there uh, going forward uh, for you. Mossy, anything else before we hit the, uh, the show? That's it. All right. Let's light this candle and let's just jump right into it. Okay. We, the, the U.S. men's national team, under 23 uh, team, is assembled and ready for action down there in Guadalajara. Uh, we will be broadcasting the tournament that features eight teams, two groups of four. As we said uh, before, the top two teams from each group advance, and then you play a semifinal game. And if you win your semifinal game, you qualify for the Olympics. Two teams of those eight ultimately go. Why is this important? Well, for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is the U.S. hasn't qualified for Olympics since 2008. And so this is setting things right and providing an opportunity for these players and for this team that could possibly be on stage a few years later in uh, the World Cup in 2022 and who knows in 2026 uh, also. So we're excited about broadcasting this. Jason Kreiss has finally named his 23. And in a moment right now, Mossy, when we talk so much about the depth of talent uh, and just the, the wide array of different types of quality players out there, even when it comes to Jason Kreiss, the debate as to what that final roster should look like is uh, is ongoing. And you know, certainly when you look at the the choices that he had to made make, there were people like Jeremy Obobese, uh out there uh, who a lot of people thought were going to be a part of it and were left off. And this this mirrors, I think, what Greg Berhalter and company are going to have to do at a certain point, too, with all of this talent means that not everybody is going to make that roster. And these are all good problems to have, but it means that they're now, for maybe the first time in a long time, there is a real debate as to who should be part of these national teams uh, when they get together. Uh, the first match for the U.S. will be on March 18th. That would be this Thursday coming up. Uh, you might even be listening to this show on that day. U.S. versus Costa Rica. Well, see, first off, um, anything you want to add on the decisions and the roster that uh, that came out last week? I think it was. Yeah, I sense some underwhelming. Uh, there are some real question marks up top, as you mentioned, as to why Ebobasi isn't on this team and whether 
uh, Jesus Ferreira can really play the sort of role that Jason Christ seems to be envisioning for him in this tournament. And also uh, some of uh, Jason Christ's choices in the midfield have come under question. Why not um, Tanner Tessman or Eric mm-hmm. Williamson? Um, and just big picture, U.S. fans, I feel like they're like uh, somebody that's driven an average car their whole life. And now they have this Ferrari sitting in the garage, uh, i.e. all this young talent, <laughs> and they want to take it out for a spin and show it off to the world. And just circumstances are conspiring against them, uh, uh, namely the pandemic and tournaments like the Under 20 World Cup getting canceled and also the difficulty in getting players from Europe released. And even in some cases, MLS players released and, and then throw in some questionable selections by Jason Christ. And it all adds up to when the U.S. finally now is playing competitive match matches um, in which it, it, in theory, would get to show off all this incredible young talent. People are looking at this squad and feeling a tad underwhelmed. Do you get that sense as well? I do. And, and it's it's kind of natural, given the fact that we have so many. By the way, this is an under-23 team, but with the year delay, it's now an under-24 team. And the reality is that we could field almost a, a full national team that people would be very happy with for our Olympic team. But with the release situation, you're just not going to get that. And so I think that plays into it, Mossy. Uh, to, to your point about the, the underwhelm, underwhelming type of reaction that we have here, when you look at the goalkeepers with Matt Fries, uh, JT Mart- uh, Marcinkowski, and David Ochoa, I think that J- uh, Jason Christ said that he is going to go with experience and even talked about platooning goalkeepers and going back and forth, which I'm never a big fan of, but it just might be so close right now. And he may actually see some things in training that he thinks benefit his team playing first against specific opponents. Maybe, maybe not. Freeze and uh, Marcinkowski, I think are going to go back and forth if there is a platooning. And if he had to pick one, probably I would think that Marcinkowski has the uh, the slight advantage. Uh, The defenders, we talked about you know, some of these players that do have full team experience and there's plenty of full team, full national team experience, including Sam Vines, who right now is, you know, possible starting left back for the full team in the back there. The midfield, as you mentioned, Mossy, that's, you know, that's where a lot of people are are scratching their head a little bit because Jordi Mihaljevic is really one of the, you know, the only real pure attacking type of players. And Jason Christ will talk about how it's much more of a rotation and, you know, the, the different p- players are going up at different times. And and I get that. But at a time where, you know, part of our excitement right now is the the creative attacking type of talent that we have out there. And so when you see a national team that doesn't have a real definitive type of playmaker and attacking talent, um, I think that's where some people are scratching their heads. There's a lot more of defensive workman-like type of uh, players. And then up top, as you mentioned, um, there's no real straight number nine. And that's not necessarily something new or different. And we're going to talk about this later on in the podcast uh, right now. But I think what we're setting up to see here, Mossy, and and I don't know, I'll, I'll be interested if you uh, agree or disagree here, is a potential continuation of this false nine that situation that we saw earlier with the national team a couple weeks ago. And maybe maybe by design, maybe just out of necessity, uh, because there is nobody. And I'm, like I said, I'm going to talk about that uh, situation up top from a full national team perspective right now. But you know, once again, you have Jesus Ferreira, who can play in that type of false nine position. And I just think you're going to see a lot of rotation and a little less type of strict and traditional definitions of players when it comes to this tournament from Jason Kreis. Um, I don't know, is that, is that an overall, would you agree with the assessment uh, when it comes to the, uh, the players that we got here? 
Yeah, we had a uh, conference call recently with uh, Greg Berhalter in which he uh, compared Jesus Ferreira to Roberto Firmino, which, by the way, that comparison seems to be very in vogue because we also had a conference call with Carly Lloyd recently where she compared herself to Roberto Firmino, which I think Everybody Firmino wants become, to be Bobby. Everybody yeah, he's become be sort Bobby. of the uh, any sort, go-to reference for any kind of false nine situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are some things to like on this team. I like the fullbacks early with Herrera and Vines. I like those pivot players in the midfield with Yule and Johnny Cardozo. I tweeted this recently and I'll reiterate it here. Johnny Cardozo is a player that I'm now fascinated to see his development because he's going to be managed this year at Internacional by a manager who I love, Miguel Angel. Ramirez is kind of like a, a, the Pep Guardiola of South American football. <laughs> so I'm fascinated to see his development. Now, Ramirez just got there. He's had a couple of practices, hasn't even coached in the game yet. So we're not going to see that effect in this tournament yet with Johnny Cardozo. But I think over the course of 2021, we will. But yeah, there's certainly talent here. And, you know, uh, U.S. fans get a little caught up in comparing this roster to Mexico. That's sort of the inevitable compare and mm-hmm. contrast. But as you mentioned, the U.S. doesn't have to be better than Mexico in this tournament. It's not like they have to win the tournament to earn a berth. They just have to finish in the top two in that group. They, they essentially need to be better than Costa Rica and the Dominican Republic and then make sure they win that semifinal game against a second place team in a group with Canada, Honduras, El Salvador, and Haiti. And this squad is certainly good enough to achieve that if they play up to their potential. Let me ask you a question, Mossy. Do you want to see this team mimic and mirror the full national team? I mean, when it really comes down to this is an under 23 team and therefore by definition, it is a developmental team, uh, hopefully positioning players to matriculate up to the full national team. And there's been a lot of talk, both from Jason Christ, the head coach of this Olympic team, and Greg Berhalter, the head coach of the full national team, about the coordination and the understanding, the partnership, and the intertwining of these two teams. We've seen them train together, have training camps together, and they've really talked very openly and publicly about how it has to be this um you know, this top-down type of mentality and understanding. So when you see this team, is it just about qualifying for this team or uh, do you want to see them play in a way that you can see that connection to the full national team? Because uh, the U.S. has missed out on the last two Olympics, I think probably just figure out a way to qualify however it takes. But you're right, in in an absolute perfect world, uh, and this is, I think, what Spain was able to cultivate a few years back, you, you, you do want to have your youth national teams playing the same system, the same style of football as the senior team so that players, when they, when they move up the system, you know, they're already accustomed to playing a certain way and, and, and a certain philosophy. And so, sure, that is something the U.S. should ultimately aspire to. I think it makes sense to aspire to that, to have uh, all the teams aligned. You got real <laughs> pragmatic real quick there, didn't you? Man, oh, man, you just throw the, the idealism out the window. Uh, now it's just about clock. No, I, I recognize the fact that we have wasted... Uh, uh, we've wasted the last couple of cycles, but you know, if this team is playing with a a clear false nine type of situation, and then when it comes to the national team, that is not what they are doing going forward. I mean, okay, but but that's I, I don't know. I part of me says if if we're going to do this, there has to be a, a an adherence that we can see to what is going on with the full uh, the full national team. And maybe I'm being, you know, a little, little greedy, I guess, when it comes to that. I want to see, yes, I want to see them win and go to the, uh, the Olympics, but I also want to see them win in a way that I can see the coordination and the understanding between, uh, between the two teams. Anything else uh, from an Olympic perspective, Monsi? Well, a couple of things. It is interesting. 
I know I just said we should avoid uh, comparing the U.S. to Mexico, but uh, but let's do it. The, the, these uh, U.S. MLS players uh, haven't played a competitive match in months. Uh, they've been in this training camp. Well, Mexico, it's the other extreme. I was covering Liga MX games this weekend with all these Mexican players that are on this squad that were playing uh, intense games, Chivas America, and then immediately afterwards are going to report for the national team and, and, and play two, three days later. So it's just a different sort of uh, uh, situation there. It'd be interesting to see <laughs> which, uh, which country is sort of better uh, in better shape for that. Um, and yeah, as far as uh, the first game against Costa Rica you mentioned, uh, it's going to be a big theme throughout this tournament. Some of the MLS players for these other countries, we talk so much about how other countries in CONCACAF have benefited from the growth of MLS and the opportunities that it's given their players to play. So right off the bat, Costa Rica, you have Randall Leal, the Nashville designated player. You have Luis Diaz, MLS Cup winner with Columbus. You have Marvin Loria, the Portland Timbers. So uh, we're going to be seeing uh, the U.S. come up against some MLS players on these other teams. All right. So the strategy, we mentioned the first games against Costa Rica. Uh, the U.S. should look to, obviously, when they're looking at the three teams that they have, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, and, and Mexico, right? So this could not have set up any better for the U.S., let's be honest, okay? So not only is Mexico in the group, and therefore you don't have to face them if you finish uh, in the top two, you don't have to face them in that semifinal that could potentially uh, you know, send you out, but they also get to play Mexico third uh, in the group. And uh, I think that that benefits uh, the United States. So you obviously look, you can beat Mexico. You certainly, I mean, if you don't beat the Dominican Republic, then something has gone drastically wrong for, for the U.S. And then you take your chances against Mexico and hope that you finish uh, e either uh, either one or two. What, what do you think the, the philosophy and the strategy is from a Jason Christ going forward in terms of these three games? Yeah, obviously, ideally, you take care of business in the first two and could go in, potentially go into that Mexico game not needing uh, a whole lot. And, and, and yeah, so, I mean, that, that I agree with you. It set up, sets up perfectly not only having Mexico in your group, but having it as the third group game. All right. So, you know, <laughs> the best laid plans, right? We've seen that before. <laughs> so hopefully this, uh, this all, uh, uh, you know, works out from a U.S. perspective. And as I said, I'm really looking forward to this tournament. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, to broadcasting it. The, uh, myself and Rob Stone and Stu Holden and Marisa Du and uh, John Strong and all the, uh, the, uh, the folks out there and many more are going to be involved. And we're going to put a lot of time and effort into it because it is important. And, um, the the players that you are going to see, uh, some of them will feature uh, in 2022. Some of them will feature in 2026. And it's fun to see them where they are right now. And for Jason Christ, he's trying to do what hasn't been done since uh, since 2008, like I said. Uh, Mossy, anything else uh, Olympic-wise? That's it. All right. So you want to move a little bit over to national team now? Full national team? Absolutely. Okay. Um, evidently, we're winning the World Cup, right? Um, is that what's happening? Uh, <laughs> according to, uh, well, not according to, well, we want to win the World Cup, right? What, uh, what did our friend Chris Richards uh, say over here? Quote, we want to make history by bringing the first World Cup back. Okay. Yeah, this is, uh, is that right? Is that the right quote there? Correct. Uh, Chris Richards, young defender, uh, Bayern Munich, he's on loan with Hoffenheim right now. And in an interview with the English media, he said, yeah, it's absolutely a goal for the U.S. to win the World Cup at home in 2026. Bruce Arena was asked about that recently, and he called it stupid talk. He said the U.S. needs to worry about qualifying for the World Cup first. So he's looking to tamp down expectations. So that was an interesting sort of back and forth there. Well, nobody expects Bruce Arena to win the World Cup. That will definitely <laughs> not happen. Okay. Uh, so in that sense, in that sense, that is crazy talk. Um, I, I love it. I, I love when when people say this. I mean, I 
years and years and years ago, we said it. If you're going to go, you're going to go to win it. And you're looking to make history. I know there was some snark out there because, um, you know, he said, uh, we want to make history by bringing the first World Cup back. And we all know that we've won multiple World Cups when it comes to our, uh, to our women's team. But come on. All right. You know what he was uh, what he was saying. And he understands that. And, then you know, <laughs> everybody's everybody's so sensitive. Believe me, the U.S. women's national team get plenty of love and deserved love from me and everybody else out there for what they have done, not just for women's soccer, but for the sport of soccer and American soccer. But when it comes to the U.S. winning a World Cup, this is this is good. I I, I like this. I mean, Bruce Arena was only a handball away of going to the semifinal back in two in, in two thousand and two. And yes, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. You have to get back to the World Cup. But I like the fact that there is a generation right now that is seeing opportunity. I like the fact there's a generation that says, you know what, what happened before was a different group of players and a different generation almost. And it's not going to happen on my watch. And not only are we going to win, but we're going to be idealistic and we are going to try to do things that have never been done in the past. I love that from players. I love that from coaches. I love that from fans. Yeah. I think the divide here is we all objectively agree the future is incredibly bright, but uh, there are some people that view the fact that um, the U.S. is now producing players that are good enough to play for the top clubs in the world as a positive first step, particularly since it doesn't feel like a random golden generation. It feels like this is the new normal and the development infrastructure is in place for the U.S. to keep pumping out players like this, but that they're still going to have to produce a whole other level of player to win the World Cup, that you need truly elite players. If you look at the rosters of these countries that win World Cups, France in 2018, Mbappe, Griezmann, Pogba, N'Golo Kante, Rafael Varane, Germany in 2014, Muller, Lahm, Schweinsteiger, Cruz, Neuer. Um, I mean, Spain 2010, forget about it. Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, Pique, Puyol, David Villa. You know, the Brazil team that won in 2002, the front three was Ronaldo, Rivaldo, and Ronaldinho with a young Kaká coming off the bench. Even Italy in 2006, Totti, Del Piero, Pirlo, Cannavaro. And so there are people that look and say, the U.S. still is going to have to produce a whole other level of player that it's produ- than it, what it's producing now. And then there are others that think, no, that this this generation of Pulisic, Reina, McKinney, Adams, five years from now, they're going to be at a level where they could be guys to spearhead a potential World Cup winning squad that the U.S. playing at home is going to be one of the contenders. And who knows? So that, that seems to be the divide. Where do you come down on that? I mean, can you envision a world in which Christian Pulisic and Giorena are the best players on a World Cup winning side? Or is that putting a little too much on them? Oh, no, because I think if it's done, I don't think it's going to be with players like those. I I don't think they are going to come out of it. I think it's going to be stuff that we did not predict. Something like this, obviously, from a historic perspective, uh, has never been done. And so, therefore, it's going to require something the likes of which we have never seen. And it's going to it's going to require things happening that we can't even contemplate, that our American soccer brains will explode at who ultimately emerge as those leaders and those types of players that you're talking about. Now, look, you don't have to have that to win. You know, look at Greece and the Euros and stuff like that. You got to have a lot of luck along the way. Okay. So it's not just about having a good team and having uh, talent out there, but you don't, you don't have to necessarily have complete game changers out there to find ways uh, to find ways to win. It makes it that much more difficult, obviously. And that's reflective in the, in the, the, the few teams that ultimately have been able to win uh, to win World Cups, but there there are different ways to do it. I'm just, uh, and maybe it's the romantic in me, Masi, but I, if you are going to do something that's never been done before, you have to internally believe something that others 
don't. And that has to be a driving force in you individually. And ideally, if you're a part of a team or a group, that infects in a good way everybody there. And it is a belief that you can do something that has never been done before. And there will be people that say it is impossible, but the only reason they are saying it's impossible is because it's never been done before, okay? And until something's done, it's going to be looked at by most people as impossible, but it's the people that look at it and say, no, it's not impossible, okay? I can do something like that, that ultimately make history and do things that are historic. And so I, I love the way that he is talking. You can chalk it up to youth, naivete, whatever it ends up being, but you know, Bruce Arena, get back to Bruce Arena, has said many, many times that the international game is a young man's game, young woman's game, young man's game, right? Well, if it is, then with that comes an idealism. With that comes a romance and a belief that you can do something that people have said is impossible. And I love, I, I love seeing something like that. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's setting him or his team or the sport up uh, for failure. We all, we're all realistic. We understand the realities and the challenge out there and the difficulties um, of, uh, of doing something like that. But, you know, in a, in a strange way, and look, we don't have a, um, a monopoly on thinking like this, but it is part of who we are. There is a real American element of saying something like that. And I, I don't apologize for it and I wouldn't have him or anybody else apologize for it. I love it. I love it. Anything else, Mossy, when it comes to uh, the full team? There are some well, news, news, right? Uh, big big news. news this morning. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. bolstered by the fact that Yunus Musa has announced he will be playing for the United States. Um, so he chooses the U.S. over essentially England. I know he was eligible for other countries, but England was the big threat here. He had represented England at various youth levels. Uh, he then made two senior appearances for the U.S. late last year, those friendlies against Wales and Panama. Uh, and he has now announced that he is uh, permanently playing for the U.S., so another feather in Greg Berhalter's cap, as we talked about in this whole crazy dual nationals world, which has become a lot like college football, college basketball, recruiting Berhalter, reels in a big fish. Uh, this was wonderful news to start the week with. Um, and, and look, is it, does it fundamentally change who we are as a team? No, but it's just another piece of that puzzle and another really good quality talent that you can throw into the mix. And, you know, that it's, that it's England matters, okay, <laughs> because this back and forth that we have with England and that this was a player that England identified from an early age and continued to identify as someone that they were going after and that we can on this Monday morning say, we won. We won this battle. Okay. We might lose the war, but we, we won this battle here when it comes uh, for a really, really talented player that uh, had choices. And that's, that's a good thing. I loved his, um, some of his quotes that he came out with in referencing, you know, the, that he, you know, the social media campaign, if you will, out there of people talking to him, seeing people in the stands when he was playing um, games in America and saying, hey, play for us. And, you know, a real type of lobbying and recruitment process, both formal and informal out there. And he even mentioned seeing all the American flags, um, which made, you know, it, it, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded American heart to see something like that, that he was influenced by that. The other, the other point is, is that, you know, it's, we were talking when we started the show off about 
the college game. And in a sense, it, it has become this, this college situation of recruitment and your ability, whether it's Ernie Stewart at the top, uh, Brian McBride and Greg Berhalter, your ability to get on those couches and to lay out a plan and one that is appetizing and enticing to some of these players is part of your job. And so this is yet another feather in the cap of the leadership over there at, uh, at U.S. Soccer. It also means that Greg Berhalter has those wonderful champagne problems. But, I mean, we've said this before, uh, there is not a previous men's national team coach that wouldn't love to have these problems right now. And what it means, Mossy, is what we're setting up is a situation where Greg Berhalter, when he finally gets the opportunity to pick this team, there's going to be a lot of debate. And that's a that's a good thing, but there's going to be a lot of debate and disagreement, I think, as to who that best 11 is or who that best 23 is from a from a, a World Cup perspective when you finally make those those squads. And I know injuries have a, a play and all that kind of stuff. But this is this is uncharted type of territory, uh, I think, that we are going to see. And there's going to be some real vehement um, uh disagreement when it comes to people out there about who he picks and I guess more importantly, who he doesn't pick. Yeah, maybe Chris Richards is right. Uh, this Yunus Musa news, I have to reevaluate and <laughs> the US maybe will win the 2026 World Cup. It's a good it's good it's a good day. It's a good day. And we, yeah. we've added yet another talented player to the mix that we are uh, that we are talking about. Uh, there's more talented uh, players out there though, Mossy. Let's just keep going with them, right? Yeah, big news involving Daryl DK, who, as you recall, uh, went on loan to uh, championship side Barnsley, has done very well and impressed people in England enough that there were reports that a big six team in the Premier League, which means either United, Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Tottenham or Liverpool offered uh, Orlando City $10 million to buy him outright. And Orlando City turned down this offer, which is dividing opinions. Uh, Orlando City, very high on this kid. So they think if he keeps playing, his value is going to go up and they would have been selling him short at $10 million. But there are others that feel like, hey, look, look at what just happened with Jordan Morris. I mean, this is money in the hand and, and they should have just taken it. And so where do you come down on that? Wow. Um, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Uh, but oh, where do I come down? Okay, so first off, keep in mind that, that, that this is a recognition of a talent that right now is slogging it out, okay? I mean, you're not, con- not going to confuse Barnsley with, Barcelona, okay, <laughs> you know, by any stretch of the imagination, right? And I think Daryl Dickey is so much more than that. And, and so I think that there is a recognition that you have a real diamond here that is in the rough and I guess roughing it right now and that there is much more to him as a player. And that's reflected in the price. But I also think that Orlando understands that. And Orlando is... Look, Orlando hasn't done much right over the years, uh, but I'm I'm okay with this right now. Um, you know, not they just have to be really careful right now because it's a real sensitive and difficult balance right now. Because if this ends up not happening with this news now out, and you know he's done and nothing happens and he comes back, you could have a a very angry. Uh, and resentful type of player on your hands. Now, look, I mean, how that manifests, who, who knows? But, you know, as, as this marketplace becomes more and more uh, credible um, and, and 
and more and more people come to it, yeah, you're going to have to have some real heart-to-heart type of conversations with yourself and with your ownership as to what they're going to do. And sometimes you got to turn the screws. And if if somebody's willing to pay $10 million for Daryl DK, and if it, if it ends up being one of these big clubs, then why isn't there somebody out there that won't recognize that $12 million is is okay too? So yeah, I'm okay with it. What about, what about you, Mossy? What do you think? Yeah, I'm okay with it. I think he's a real talent. And if they hold on to him for a bit longer, you know, yes, there's always that injury risk, but you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm okay with this decision. I I think with the way American players are so in vogue now, uh, he goes back to MLS and uh, has a good season. I think there's a very good chance this time next year, we're talking about an even bigger fee for him. Yeah, and we're going to talk later in the pod about the situation up top for the U.S. men's national team. And Daryl DK right now is is figuring in. And I mean, he has burst on the scene and um, doing stuff the, like what he is doing right now is wonderful for him, obviously, for his value, for the league, uh, and for that credibility that just continues to rise each and every time. Whether this deal gets done or not, this is this is a great story and a great message uh, to put out there. Doesn't necessarily help Daryl DK from an individual perspective, but from an MLS perspective and obviously an Orlando perspective, this is this is exactly what they wanted to have happen, and it's exactly what MLS wants to have happen on a consistent basis. And now they're just got to be they just have to be careful not to undersell or undervalue the assets that they have as some of these leagues and some of these clubs start to come in and pick off that talent right there. You got to make sure that you're getting fair. Uh, fair value at the time or incorporate it into uh, the contract so that you get that value later on down the line as they continue to uh, to progress. All right, Mossy, anything else uh, when it comes to uh, DK or anybody else out there? That's it. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, we'll take a trip around the rest of the world. Don't go anywhere. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back, and we're going to take a trip around the rest of the world here. All sorts of stuff going on, on and off the field when it comes to uh, the beautiful game. Lots of soccer over the last week, including this weekend, uh, gave us stuff to talk about. Mossy, where do you want to start? 
Well, let's start with the Champions League last week. Uh, both Ronaldo and Messi were knocked out. I want to dive into those games uh, specifically, but first, the big headline news that came out of those games. Uh, we thought this summer was going to be all about Messi's future, and it looks like it will be about Ronaldo's as well, uh, because Juve getting knocked out by Porto has... Uh, triggered all sorts of speculation about his future, this, this narrative that uh, this marriage has been a failure because he was brought in there to win uh, the Champions League and they've gotten knocked out in the quarterfinals by Ajax his first season and then round the 16 by Lyon last season, round the 16 by Porto this season. So everyone's concluded that this has been a failure. Uh, he signed a four-year contract with Juventus, so he's played out three of those years and he has one left. But there's a thought that, that he's uh, unhappy with Juventus and what they've surrounded him with and the coaches they've hired. And he is now pining for a return to Real Madrid. Uh, his agent, Jorge Mendes, has reportedly reached out to Florentino Perez and Real Madrid are open to the idea because they're not sure they're going to be able to afford Mbappe or Holland. At least that's how the story goes, according to the Spanish media. Mm -hmm. So take all of that with a grain of salt. And meanwhile, Juventus, uh, given their financial woes during this pandemic, might feel like getting that contract off the books and getting some money from this summer is the thing to do. So put it all together. And it's not just going to be about Messi this summer. We're also going to be talking about Ronaldo. There's also been stories that if PSG don't get Messi, they might go for Ronaldo. So what do you wow. make of it? Wow. Uh, well, I, as we as we mentioned, uh, whether it was last week's show or the, or the previous one, I don't think that it has been a failure. Okay. If, I mean, if you just if if you just look at it from a Champions League perspective, fine. Okay. And if that's the case you want to make, fine. But I think he has made Juventus and Serie A more relevant uh, by just his actual presence. That he wants or potentially wants to go or just is going to go, uh, or maybe they don't they don't want him there anymore. Eh. I mean, I'd love to see it. To be quite honest with you, um, I would love to see that return. And I think La Liga would love to see that. Um, would Real Madrid love to see that? Yeah. I mean, I think by all accounts, it, it, he is still revered there. I don't think that he, there was no type of scorched earth situation. Um, so yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to see that. I, I like to see players move. It, it makes it more interesting to me. It provides a whole new narrative uh, and, and new circumstances um, and, and a new situation that, to be quite honest with you, generates great content. Uh, and that's a good thing. It just makes it more interesting for me. So I don't know. Would you want to see this happen? I, I, I kind of liked him going to Juventus for the reasons that um, we, we discussed at the time, him trying a different league. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that his career is more interesting than Messi's in that regard. The fact that he's skipped around and done and played in different leagues. And so yeah, I don't know. Him going back to Real Madrid, I don't, that, that wouldn't excite me. I want him to either stay at Juventus or go somewhere else completely different. Yeah, so. I, 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 I'm with you with that. So you said uh, the potential is, is possibly PSG or something like that? Well, that's just been speculation. Right. You know, I mean, there's only a I, certain amount of places that they can go unless, it, I mean, it's a, unless he's really saying, all right, yeah. that's it. And then... Now, now, the game where they got knocked out was an absolute classic, that second oh, leg against goodness. Porto. What a game. What and, a game. and Juve really have to be kicking themselves. They had a terrible first half. They go into the breakdown 1-0. Uh, but then 
a dream first 20 minutes of the second half. Uh, Chiesa equalizes. Then they get a gift of all gifts, that bonehead red card by that Porto player who kicks the ball away. Um, Taremi, I believe his name. Uh, and then Chiesa gets another. So now they've leveled the tie in the 63rd minute. They have a man advantage at home, all the momentum. And at that point, everybody's thinking, oh, this is, they're going to get another one here. We still have the obligatory Ronaldo goal still to come in this game. So uh, you are going to be in good shape. And give Porto credit. They hung in there. They defended well with 10 men. And they managed to get this game into extra time. And then lo and behold, they score off a long distance free kick. Ronaldo on the wall. He jumps. The ball goes underneath them. He got some criticism for that. Uh, you Juve pull one back with Rabio, but it's not enough. Porto go through on away goals. Absolutely incredible game. All the focus on Ronaldo, but it was another veteran, former Real Madrid Portuguese international that stole the show for me. I thought Pepe's performance at 38 oh, years of age was rolled back the years. Absolutely incredible. And so Porto move on. How great a game was that? That was nuts. Should we talk about the wall? Yes. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In a game where you are relative to most other sports, left to your own devices, okay? You, you, you can kind of do what you want. The coach has very limited impact, right? You know, we talk about set pieces um, and the importance of set pieces when there is actual structure and planning. And a wall is, seems like a, a small thing. And a wall seems like that the amount of times that it actually does its job. I don't think we appreciate the amount of times that it does its jobs. And I also don't think necessarily uh, we as fans or even necessarily as people that aren't goalkeepers appreciate how, <laughs> how important it is in that moment. Now, um, you know, we've seen this, um, you know, this, uh, this change where players are lying down in front of the wall to guard against the low shot, which, is very low percentage, but I get it. Although it does waste a, although oh, it does waste a player, that was a horrible wall, and the um, the criticism that that wall, including Cristiano Ronaldo, are getting right now is absolutely one hundred percent warranted. Okay, it doesn't matter who you are, how much money, how famous, how much experience you have. There is a way to be in a wall, and that is certainly not uh, the way to be in a wall. And it comes down to the players, but ultimately it comes down to the coach. And that's just another unfortunate bad mark when it comes, uh, when it comes to Pirlo. And I don't know what Pirlo's future holds, and I don't know how he is going to ultimately be looked at at the end of this season, given, uh, given what has happened. Great game. What do you think about the uh, you know the rule where the away goals still applies when it goes to extra time? I don't like it. I think uh, I've always said the CCL uh, had that right all those years, and the UCL has it wrong. I don't think away goal should count in extra time. Why not? Uh, because it, it feels unfair to me that over the course of the tie, one team gets 30 extra minutes of uh, the away goals rule in their favor. Yeah, you, I, think, I think people are looking at it. Um, and, and saying, oof, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's something that needs to be looked at, uh, going forward, but, but it's still go ahead. The, the Barcelona, I want to shift gears to the PSG Barcelona game because uh, this game elicited some really interesting reactions. Barcelona go down there, uh, trailing four, one, 
and completely dominate the second leg. Uh, PSG approached this all wrong. They defended too deep. They let Barcelona come at them in waves. It was a 90-minute battering, and it ends 1-1. But had Kaylor Navas not stood on his head, this could have been another remontada, uh, particularly that penalty at the end of the first half. If Messi converts that and Barcelona go in 2-1 up with all the momentum, I think <laughs> PSG would have been very wobbly in that second half, and, and Barcelona might have pulled this off. But nevertheless, the, the reaction outside of Spain was... Bottom line, you lost 5-2 on aggregate to a PSG team without Neymar, and Barcelona makes its earliest Champions League exit in 14 years, and this just is further evidence to Messi that that if he wants to win a Champions League title, he needs to get out of there. On the other hand, in Spain, they really feel like Barcelona are going to take a lot of strength from that performance and and that Messi should feel better about things and that coming out of that game, he sees how much talent there is there and how promising the future is, and now he has a president that he likes in Laporta, and so... In Spain, the sense is that this is trending towards Messi staying, while everybody else outside of Spain thinks it's trending towards him going. So it's it's an interesting little disconnect there. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was amazing to hear this. You know, I guess we get back to the romantic notion of of this was this was Barcelona. I mean, the the, the scoreline was almost irrelevant <laughs> at a certain point in that there, and I, I guess in a in a strange way, it actually shows how thirsty and desperate the uh, Barcelona fans are for a return to some sort of beauty and creativity and romance when it comes to their team in that they finally saw uh, what that, that heartbeat has been for so long and that it happened in a moment when they, they go out of this, this tournament and, and just on the, on the score sheet look to have been played off the field. Yeah, I mean that 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 was strange. I mean, I guess, like I said, I think it just shows how desperate and how far the mighty have fallen to 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 lay your hat on on something like this. And the other two games last week, uh, Liverpool two 0 win over Leipzig. Uh, Mane and Salah with the goals for all their domestic struggles. Liverpool very impressive in this tie. The way they dusted off Leipzig four 0 mm-hmm. on aggregate, so they move on. And then Dortmund move on too. They came back with a three two lead over Sevilla two two second leg, so they move move on five four in aggregate. Both Dortmund goals surprise surprise. Erlen Holland he now has ten. He is the runaway top scorer in the competition this season. Oh my goodness, he's so good. <laughs> There's so not good. much else to say. I mean, we've talked about it. So, uh, um, it's, but, I mean, but we're going to be talking about him. I mean, knock on wood, he stays healthy. We're going to be talking about him for the next 10 years. So that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to have. I do have a quasi-Dortmund-related rant. Uh, uh, oh, good. The, uh, good team. All right. So, good. Lay it on me. I'm here. Uh, I'm here so, for it. So this week in the Champions League, one of the games is Manchester City back home. Oh, I'm sorry. This game is in Budapest. Uh, They're going to be looking to finish off uh, Gladbach. They have a 2-0 first leg lead. It was announced in mid-February that uh, Gladbach's coach Marco Rosa would be leaving at the end of the season to go to Dortmund. Since then, Gladbach have lost all six games in all competitions. I know it's the way things are done in Germany, but it will never stop being weird to me that these transactions are announced so far ahead of time. I've said this before. To me, it's like you're dating a girl and you tell her, hey, I'm going to leave you for a different girl, but only in a few months. In the meantime, we'll keep going out. And it's a completely ridiculous dynamic, particularly in a sport like soccer, where there are things you fight for in one season that are only relevant towards the next. So when this move was announced, 
Uh, Dortmund and Gladbach were level on points, both in the top four mix. And D Gladbach have since gotten into the tank. They're out of it while Dortmund are in the thick of the top four race in Germany. And I I'm not accusing Marco Rosa of like throwing it, but th there's no way that you can convince me that it's not a conflict of interest. There's no way you can convince me that it's to any benefit to him for Gladbach to have snatched a top four spot at the expense of Dortmund when he's going to be coaching Dortmund next season. And so I just find this, you know, we, we covered the Bundesliga all those years, and we always thought this was weird. I mean, there was that crazy situation where Julian Nagelsmann coached an entire season at Hoffenheim when it was already determined he was going to be taking over Leipzig the following campaign. So I don't like the way they do this in Germany. I just think it sets up a real difficult dynamic. And I, I try to picture myself sitting in, uh, in a locker room in front of a coach who has already decided that they are leaving. Yeah, I think it's I think it's. Yeah, I, I, I would not look at that coach the same way because there would be a part of me going, yeah, but you're out of here. You know, you're telling us to do this and that and you're out of here. And Dortmund and Gladbach are not that far apart in the food chain. You know, if it's the, the coach at Scunthorpe United who's leaving to take over Liverpool, nobody at Scunthorpe United is going to begrudge him and they're going to be happy to see him go. But this one is like, like I said, two clubs that are sort of battling in the same weight class. So it, to me, it's a very weird dynamic. So that's one game this upcoming week. City presumably are going to, put Gladbach out of their misery. Yeah. The other tie that's definitely over, Bayern come back home with a 4-1 lead over Lazio. The other two, though, are interesting. Real Madrid home looking to protect a 1-0 lead against Atalanta. Big news here was Eden Hazard, who had been out forever. He came back this past weekend against Elche, got re-injured again. Looks like he's going to be out four to six weeks, so he misses this game. And that connects to the Ronaldo thing because Hazard yeah. was the player that they brought in ostensibly to, to fill that void. And he's been a disaster. So that's why they're contemplating bringing Ronaldo back. And then uh, Chelsea come back home with a 1-0 lead over Atletico Madrid. So that's going to be interesting because Atletico are more than capable of going there, winning 2-1, let's say, and taking it on away goals. Well, uh, you know, that's Champions League. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you know, we're talking about Cristiano Ronaldo possibly you know, moving on and stuff like that. But until then, he's just going to keep scoring goals, right? That's, uh, that's what he does. And uh, he had a what, he had a, a hat trick over the weekend, right, Mossy? And uh, big yes, record, sir. big record. In true Michael Jordan fashion, Michael Jordan was famous for sort of taking any perceived slight and using it as motivation. Mm -hmm. And Ronaldo sat back the past few days and heard all this talk about how uh, his marriage with Juventus has been a failure, and, and he didn't say anything. And then he goes out against Cagliari this weekend, scores a hat trick in the first. 32 minutes of the game and turns to the camera after one of those goals and, and does, you know, the, the finger to the lip sort of quiet sign as if to tell all his critics to, you know, keep their mouth shut. And so uh, it was a great performance. Right? Doesn't change any of the overall narrative, by the way, because uh, like I said, it's not like people were questioning Ronaldo and his ability to score mm -hmm. goals, but they argued that Juve's results in the Champions League with him indicate that it, it just, just hasn't been a good mix. And, and just as much for Juve's fault and how much and the players they've surrounded him with and the coaches they've hired. So I didn't take this to be like Ronaldo silencing his critics. It was a bit of a non sequitur, to be honest. Nevertheless, it was a great performance by him. Um, um, eh, and, it's Cagliari. <laughs> and, 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 and he reaches 770 uh, career goals, which uh, moves past Pele's total, which is, I guess, the number we've landed on now is 767 with him. Seems like a bit of a moving target. Um, and it is worth noting that after decades of being very disrespectful towards any challengers to his throne. Pele in his old age has, be, has become a lot more gracious. I know people on Twitter don't want to accept it. So anytime anybody in Brazil disputes 
uh, these goal totals. People projected onto Pele, but Pele hasn't disputed anything, to be fair. He's, uh, with both Messi and Ronaldo the last few weeks, been very gracious, sent them some very nice notes, congratulating them on surpassing his records. And he did so here with Ronaldo. Ronaldo wrote him back a very nice note. So it's all kumbaya right now between those three. And even with Maradona, Pele was genuinely affected by Maradona's passing. And from what you read, the last few years, they kind of patched things up and forged a genuine friendship. So that's nice to see that all these uh, goats here have kind of made peace. Yeah, I mean, look, I, none of these these legends were legends without a good, healthy ego. And many of them found that they were able to harness that ego to great effect. And that doesn't necessarily go away just because you stop playing. Uh, but there probably is a point in life where you get and you have so much perspective that you recognize that it's just it's a waste. It's a waste of time to be constantly running around and what you what you think is protecting your legacy uh, or defending yourself in that you know, Pele as a legend isn't going anywhere, regardless of what anybody else does. <laughs> That's going that is going to last forever if, if he is worried about that. I don't think he <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think he is worried about that. <clears throat> what else, Mossy? Anything else? Well, yeah, so despite despite uh, Ronaldo's hat-trick, Juve's win, they're still 10 points back of Inter, who beat Torino 2-1, goals by Lukaku and Lautaro, and, and Milan lost to Napoli. So Milan are off the case as far as Serie A are concerned. They're nine points back of Inter, and it feels like the only threat to Inter is Juve mounting a charge. Do you think uh, Pirlo's back next year? I think so. I think they've gotten rid of so many managers recently. Mm. They're going to they're gonna rationalize that he's young and he deserves a, a, a second season. Uh, but this is certainly trending towards Inter winning Serie A. They're threatening to make it a procession. Meanwhile, Spain, by the way, is going the other direction because Atletico Madrid drew against Getafe this weekend. Real Madrid beat Elche and Barcelona played today against Huesca. They're going to win that game. So in Spain, it's really tightening up and becoming quite the three-team race there. Uh, all right. And what, should we go over to England now? Where should we yeah, go? Yeah, let's go to England. Uh, really only one game worth discussing in England this weekend, which is the yeah. North London Derby. I have lots of thoughts about the game itself, but we should first start out with the goal. The goal. Eric Lamella. Goal. Is, I mean, where does that, is that one of the best goals you've seen in a long time? I, I mean, I, I saw it in the moment and <laughs> immediately said, this is the goal of the year. Okay. And, uh, you know, that for those, I mean, if, if anybody didn't see it, uh, a, a predominantly left-footed player, uh, very much so left-footed player, uh, ended up doing, a, what do we call it, a Rabona? Is that what the... Yep. So where you twist and contort your, in this case, it would be his left foot, around the back of your right ankle in order to hit the ball, which is situated to the right of your right foot. And you know, everybody has done this. We've seen it uh, different times. It is a, it, it requires incredible skill, incredible strength, uh, and incredible timing. And, you know, we have seen different players do it, um, but it is a special type of moment. It's kind of like a bicycle type of moment you know, in that it doesn't happen that often. The reason why I think this one was so special was the actual velocity and the, the the direction and the precise nature of this shot. Had this been taken with, in this case, since it was coming from the left side, a right foot, uh, it would have been hit pure. And that's the word that I keep coming back to. Even in this moment where he was doing something that is that is unnatural, even within the game, the purity in which he hit it 
And yes, it goes through somebody's legs, so you can add the nutmeg to it. And then it goes in the side, the side netting. Um, it just, it was beautiful. It was a, it was a work of art and um, deserves, I think, all of the praise and accolades and the amazement that came from it. What about you, Mossy? Would you like it? Uh, it was a great goal. It also happened to be uh, the only sign of life from Tottenham in the first 75 minutes of this game. I mean, they come in uh, flying, everybody talking about this reborn Gareth Bale, the best attack in Europe now, Bale, Son, and Kane. He started Lucas Moura too, so it was a really attack-minded lineup, essentially like a 4-2-4. And yet the first 75 minutes, they slept walk through this game. Gareth Bale, I mean, it was I know it's a cliche, but it really was like playing with 10 players. And Arsenal were terrific, I thought. You know, Arteta, he was an assistant under Pep at Manchester City. And we know that's the style of football he wants to play. He's had a tough time implementing it. But we saw for 75 minutes there, I mean, if you close your eyes, that looked like Manchester City, the way they were whipping the ball around between Odegaard and Smith Rowe, who I love, and Partey and Shaka. And so Arsenal should have been up way more than 2-1. And, and they, they had two shots off the crossbar. Uh, but still, they're up 2-1. They get the Lamella red card. So you think, okay, now up a goal, up a man at home, dominating the game. They're going to see this out comfortably. And this is, I'm sorry, Arsenal fans, but this is a, the difference between, you got away with it this time, but this is the difference between winning and losing teams. Arsenal then spent the last 15 minutes of this game doing everything they could to give this win away, like horrible turnovers in their own halves, uh, committing stupid fouls. And all, very nearly blew it. They had to endure. I mean, you had Harry Kane scored an equalizer that was correctly waved off for offsides. Then he had that free kick off the post, the rebound, Gabriel with the clearance. I mean, unbelievable that uh, given the degree to which they dominated this game for 75 minutes, that they very nearly didn't win it. And for those Arsenal fans out there that are screaming right now, uh, listening to us sing, uh, you know, the, the Obama Yang thing. Uh, well, I'm going to address that actually at the end of the show. So don't worry that, uh, you know, the fact that he was dropped um, uh, because of disciplinary uh, reasons. We'll address that at the end of the show. But to your point, Mosty, uh, they made it very, very interesting <laughs> in, in only a way that Arsenal uh, uh, can do it. I, I was much more, I guess, disappointed in Spurs than I was impressed with Arsenal. Ultimately. That's fair. There's probably a lot of Arsenal people are, are the same way. But you know, at this point, beggars can't be choosers and you take the three points and say, thank you very much, right? Uh, and classic Mourinho, he had a big issue with the penalty uh, decision where Lacazette scored the go-ahead goal. He said, uh, you know, players are tired now, and I think referees are tired too. Michael Oliver has refereed a lot of games lately, and I think his, his <laughs> fatigue affected him on that call. He was Just fatigued, <laughs> so he's seeing things now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, a couple more items here. I asked uh, Jeff Hernandez to put this in the rundown. There were some uh, big derby games all over the world. Uh, obviously in Europe, we just talked about Arsenal, Tottenham. You had Sevilla, Betis in Spain. But also in other parts of the world, you had uh, Boca River this weekend. You had Chivas America, a game I watched last night on Telemundo. You had Flamengo Fluminense uh, at the Maracanã for the Carioca State Championship. Um, and it, it, it did make me reflect in this era, because inevitably that sort of triggered a lot of debate about what the biggest derbies are in the world. And in this era where European football is so dominant and everybody else has such an inferiority complex right now, this conversation about derbies is where other parts of the world get to like puff out their chest a little bit because derbies, it's less about the quality of the game, but it's more about the passion, the pageantry that surrounds them. And there's still this feeling in other parts of the world that the intensity of a book of river game 
uh, trumps the intensity of any derby in Europe or, or, or likewise Chivas America or some of the big derbies in Brazil. So it was interesting to see that debate going on this weekend. But it then makes you think about these empty stadiums or near empty stadiums. And, you know, in Europe is not as, as big a problem because the quality of the games is so high. But in these other parts of the world where that's the draw and you're so dependent on, uh, you know, the, the, the atmosphere to really juice up the game when you don't have that, but you really feel it even more than, than anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're getting tired of saying this sucks, <laughs> you know, but it does. It's any way you slice it. We're we're missing something and we will continue to miss it. And whether it's, you know, the, the biggest derbies in the world or just, you know, a, a high school game or a youth game, it's without that, you know, communal tribal type of uh, of moment when we all come together. I mean, I, Mossy, I, I, I see the, uh, you know, some of these games, and look, everybody does what they feel is right, but I cannot stand watching games now without, without that crowd noise. And even if it's piped in, I would rather have it be artificial than not at all. It just, the, the, the naked, stark nature of it, it just pains me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I understand the lament. Uh, and it continues on. Hopefully, we're heading in the right direction here, Mossy. That uh, we can we can all come back together. I mean, can you imagine now that the compensation that is going to happen when people come back in yeah. and the sheer volume? They're going to have to have uh, you know these the, uh, the 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 meters to see what type of um, volume is being generated relative uh, to before. Because I think people are going to you know, overcompensate uh, and try to make up for that lost time that we have had. It's going to be great. It's going to be great when it comes to sports or, you know, concerts or any type of gathering out uh, out there. And I can't wait. And I'm look, I'm not saying anything that anybody else uh, doesn't believe. I can't wait till we're able to do that again. And to your point, yeah, they, they suffer, but we as a, as a world are adjusting and we're we're making do and making the best out of what we all recognize as, as just been an absolute crap type of situation. Anything else, Mossy, from uh, from around the world? Last last story. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. Uh, horrible and utterly bizarre. Um, uh, we hip, skip over to France, where uh, mm-hmm. Lille drew Monaco nil nil, which opened the door for PSG to if they had won their game to to move into first place in Ligue 1. They didn't. They lost two one to Nantes but overshadowed by what happened in that PSG game. So Angel Di Maria's house was robbed and his family was home. So they were held hostage. And uh, Di Maria was made aware of this in the middle of the game. Leonardo, the sporting director, was told by the authorities. He got a message down to Pochettino, who immediately subbed out Di Maria, who uh, rushed out of the stadium to go check on his family. He was crying. Uh, and then we later find out that the same thing happened to another PSG player, Marquinhos. Only, he, he only became aware of his situation after the game. Uh, I'm reading today that all the family members are safe. The robbers made out with a bunch of money and jewelry, and et cetera. But, you know, things that can be replaced. Luckily, like no, nobody was harmed in all this. And so I, I guess it's a happy ending and it could have been a lot worse but still just an incredible incredible turn of events oh, i can't even imagine i can't even imagine uh, you know going through something like that and, and playing out in real time in front of us as as we saw what was happening obviously we didn't know necessarily what was what was going on but i mean god i mean these pieces of crap whoever they are uh lock them up and throw away the key it's a real problem uh 
where, you know, you have these famous people who the robbers know aren't yep. home for those two hours because they're off playing their game. So if they find out where these people live, uh, we've, we've seen professional soccer players all over the world are real targets for robberies during these games. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, we see it with with all sorts of celebrities and high profile and famous and rich people out there, especially if they're in social media, you you know, you kind of can understand where they are and what's going on. And it opens up uh, an opportunity, uh, an opportunity there. It also, you know, look, this can happen anywhere, uh, anywhere in the world, but it also dramatically shows, you know, some of the some of the challenges out there and some of you know the, the real the real problems when it comes to some of these some of these players and and what is going uh, and what is going on off the field and you know we judge them on that on that ninety minutes and sometimes we don't know you know the situation and some of the real problems that are going on uh, uh, going on off the field so I'm glad that uh, evidently nobody was ultimately hurt and but you know it's just <laughs> it's crazy it's crazy anything else Mossy that's it. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will have our Ask Alexi segment. Oh, yeah, don't go away. Okay, we're back. And it's time for our Ask Alexi segment where we uh, reach out there on the uh, social media platforms. And you've used that hashtag, uh, Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy, or even if you just ask a question, we like you to use the hashtag, but it's not. Uh, necessary all the time. And we pick out a few questions, uh, comments, concerns out there from the folks out there. Um, Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? Uh, first up, uh, D Cup. Of all your past teammates, who do you want with you in a bar fight? <laughs> okay. I've been asked this question uh, before. I've always said that, you know, I've actually been asked this question about what, what, player do you want on your team if you're going to win an, uh, a World Cup game? And that's in general. So I'll, I'll just say that I've always said that um, I want Landon Donovan if I have to win a World Cup game, but I want Clint Dempsey if I have to be in a bar fight. As far as my previous teammates, because I was never a teammate with Clint Dempsey, um, it would have to be Clay Coyman. Uh, for those that don't know, just a teddy bear of a man, but an absolute nutcase when it comes to uh, the player and an, an ability to see red, but also just an incredible, endearing, and at times baffling um, loyalty and commitment to his teammates. Uh, you know, th this is a type of guy who Yes, if I was in a bar fight with uh, with, I would want Clay Coyman on my side. This is the type of guy I think that even after that fight, he's the kind of guy who probably would have tended to the wounds, both the physical and the emotional wounds out there that he had inflicted on the victims within the bar, um, and he would be uh, nursing them and bandaging them and giving them water. While pointing out, by the way, that it was they who drew first blood because he was a man and is a man of of honor. So he was nuts. I mean, this guy on the field, you and you would talk to him and he was just this gentle giant. And yet he would get on the field and he was nuts or he would get into a situation where he felt that he needed to protect you as as is as your teammate, as his teammate. So, yeah. It would be uh, it would be Clay Coyman. 
next up, Boy by the River. Is Altador your number one striker if we had a qualifier tomorrow? Absolutely. Um, nobody has of yet stepped up and proven a worthy successor to Josie Altador. And by the way, this is not a good thing. This is just the situation that we are in when it comes to that specific position. You know, notwithstanding all of the wonderful things that are happening, all of the excitement and optimism and comp- confidence that we have with this incredible pool of talent that we have, there is still nobody up there, up top, who has been tested and who, if we were playing a World Cup qualifier today, uh, that I would necessarily trust. Now, I'm, I'm okay with Jossie Zardes. He's certainly had a, a long run. But I think that, you know, this, is, this was a question, once again, um, about who you start today, if there was a World Cup qualifier today. And look, there hasn't been a whole lot of opportunity over the last year and a half because of the reality of our situation. And so nobody has grabbed a hold of that and said, you know, this is mine. Josie right now is still, in my mind, maybe the only player that in this moment, the opposition would actually worry about and fear and game plan for. Now, you know, maybe we're going to see, like, as I mentioned with the Olympic team, maybe we're going to see a false nine type of situation. And that in and of itself is an indictment because nobody has said this position is mine. And I know we talked about Daryl DK and we've, you know, we've certainly talked about Josh Sargent, who's on a good run right now. And that's, that's all, that's all fine and well, but you know, World Cup qualifying, it is, it is a different animal. And I know a lot of people Look, I don't want Josie Altador to be the guy. I don't even want Josie Altador necessarily to be part of this next cycle. But we don't, we don't have anybody else. Now, that might change over the year, and I think it will change over the year. But it, until it actually does, if I had to win one game with what Josie Altador does, and yes, we're talking about him being healthy, okay? So this is a hypothetical. If Josie Altador is healthy, he's still is the guy up top if you are playing with a much more traditional type of nine up top. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Mossy? Uh, you say Josie over Jossie Zardes? Uh, if the, yeah, if Josie, is, if Josie is healthy, yes, it's still Josie right now. They do very, very different things. I'm okay with Jossie Zardes. Yeah, I mean, both of them, I think, have, have proven that they can do it at the international level. You know, it's, it's all the other, the other these players that we're now throwing them, throwing them in and just extrapolating it out, saying, well, this player is doing this here or this player is playing here, and therefore he should be the starter right now. I mean, that that's... That comes with time. And I, and I, like I said, I hope over the next year we can say, you know what, we have moved on from Josie. And there is somebody else that has taken a hold of that. I think Greg Berhalter would probably, if, if, if there was a World Cup qualifier today, I, I think he would probably start Josie, uh, Josie Zardes. I don't know. I don't know. Let us know. And I, and I know a lot of people got mad at me <laughs> uh, on Twitter this week for suggesting that Josie Altador could even possibly be an option right now. Like, don't kill the messenger. That's just where we are right now. And if you just want to, you know, take a um, take a shot at, at an unproven, young, inexperienced type of player up there, fine. But I want to hedge my bets if it, if it comes down to a World Cup qualifier. That once again, the question was, if it happened today, might be very, very different six months or uh, or a year from now.
All right, Moss, what else? Well, look, all this soccer stuff is finding well, but we're going to end on the most important topic <laughs> in the world right now. Uh, Elk Gree Alex Sum asks simply, Alexi, what do you think of Harry and Meghan? Oh, Mossy. Uh, so what do I think of them? Um, I, don't, I don't understand where this fascination has come from. You know, I get it like, you know, when there's a wedding or something happens with the monarchy over there that we from afar kind of look at it and we are curious about something that has very little resemblance to what we have over here. I get that curiosity factor. But now that we've imported this, what, why are we fascinated with? You know, I, I enjoy laughing at the ridiculousness of both Meghan and Harry, uh, Meghan slash Harry, I guess that would be one thing, and the monarchy, okay? And I don't think that I should be made to choose between the two. Why can't I just laugh at both of them? Uh, I also think um, that it's weak. Mossy, I think we have we have done ourselves a disservice. I think it's weak that that melding effect that we sometimes have um, of the two names like Benifer or uh, Brangelina or whatever. Um, why that isn't a thing yet? It's still always Meghan and Harry, and I, I would think that we've we've kind of failed in our basic responsibility as a society in not coming up with a amalgamation. Is that what it's called between the between the two names so that. Uh, so people out there, let me know what we should call them right now. But, you know, they make me laugh. The ridiculousness of it all makes me laugh. I must admit, my opinion on this issue has evolved. I've had a lot of conversations with Kate Abdo and Warren Barton uh, over the years. I used to be pro-British uh, monarchy, and now I, I think I'm against. Uh, uh, ironically, I was traveling in Europe the last few years and visiting these royal residences and seeing the opulence. And, and the fact that in other countries like France, it, it's a relic of a bygone era, while in England, this is still going on. And the fact that anybody could be born into a position of prominence, I do think is antithetical to the values of meritocracy that we should at least be trying to promote uh, in the world. So I, I, am, I think I'm anti-British monarchy at this point. But yeah, I mean, uh, I will say season seven of The Crown is going to be fire. I mean, we get to this Harry <laughs> and Meghan stuff. I wonder who's yeah, going to play gonna Oprah. To... I mean, can uh, we... We could actually, since she's an actress, we could actually hire her to actually play <laughs> herself in it, right? That Now, that would be meta, right? That would be crazy. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm, glad we, I'm glad we, the world needed your take on Harry and Listen, Meghan. Listen, I hear you. I hear you, Mossy. All right, anything else? That's it. All right, we're going to take another real quick break. And when we come back, as I mentioned, I will have my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back, uh, and it's the end of the show, which is when we do my one for the road. And as I mentioned, uh, I wanted to touch on the situation over at uh, Arsenal this uh, this weekend. Uh, Pierre uh, Obama Yang, the captain, star, goal scorer uh, for Arsenal, was left out of the starting lineup, sent to the bench for a disciplinary issue. Um, we came, uh, as the, uh, the game came on air, we came to find out that this was done. Um, Arteta, the coach explained that this was a disciplinary uh, issue. And when, you know, as the game progressed, we started to hear word that it was relative to him showing up late to a, uh, to a meeting when it comes to being on time, 
uh, my, my wife and my children can attest to this. Uh, it is very, very important to me. And I am of that old school. Uh, and I don't know if it's old school, actually. I just think I'm from the school of it, it hurts me emotionally, mentally, physically to be late for anything. I take it personally um, when I am late for something and do everything in my power never to let that happen. And I live in constant fear of being late. Now, I'm sure there's a doctor out there that can figure out why that is, but it's just the, uh, the reality. I know that there are people that aren't necessarily built that way. And I know it's real easy for me to judge those people because I cannot comprehend anybody that would cut it close or be late for something. Um, so with, with, with that said, you know, the way that I look at this decision is that stars are treated differently, okay? That is a fundamental reality of teams out there and certainly of, of big teams and certainly the professional game. You realize that very early on in your life and in your career. And as I've said time and time again, life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. And so in this moment, uh, I don't know if Arteta is going to go on to have success or be a great coach ultimately, but there is a part of me, and I guess it gets back to, once again, romantic, it's a theme for the show. There is a part of me that has incredible respect for what he did. Now, I was listening to the, the broadcast of the game this weekend, and um, you know, I think um, uh, a couple of the, uh, the pundits were talking about how that you're, you're, you deal with that internally, but you don't hurt your team by making a decision like that. And I, I understand that. And as I said, Oftentimes, stars are treated differently, and it's not always fair. And as a player, you come to understand and realize that. You know, however, for Arteta, in this moment, he did something that very few do. And yes, he does it for Arsenal, so it's a little easier for him to do that. But still, you know, we, we talk about club culture. We talk about club identity. We talk about a club ethos, all, all of these different things. And let's be honest, for the most part, it's, it's mostly BS, okay? It's nice to talk about, but it is a romanticized view that, I'm going to be honest with you, rarely, rarely lives up uh, to the reality of what's going on internally or on the ground at a, at a club. But if in that moment... Um, when you are faced with decision, if you betray your, or your principles, because in that moment it is convenient, it is easy to do so, then it was really all BS to begin with. And at least in that moment, I'm glad that Arsenal won. And I know we talked about how they won, but I'm glad that in that moment, he was able to stand tall and adhere to his principles and to make a point that it matters. And even in making that point, do something that was detrimental possibly to him in his quest to win and his team in its quest to win, that showed character and honor. And it lived up to the things that we often talk about. Now, he might've lost his job. He could've, you know, it could've got, gone very south and everybody would've pointed to that 
and it could have been very, very problematic. But you got to pick and choose wisely. And I like the fact that there was a moment in time there when somebody stood up for what they what they ultimately believe, because it's so easy in our world, in soccer world and in life, to betray you know th- those things that we talk about, and then they just become they become words. And look, we're all guilty of it at, at a different point. I am, you are, everybody at some point uh, does that. But to the extent that you can find ways to live up to it and pick those moments when it is important to stand up for what, uh, for what you believe and what you are saying, then you're cooking. Then you're actually establishing a culture. And I'm not saying that this is a seminal moment that's going to fundamentally change everything. As I said, Arteta might go on or off uh, going forward. You know, he might, he might continue, he might not. But it, we just, there's so few and far between when we see these moments where people stand, uh, stand up for ultimately you know, these things that we kind of throw out there with very little meaning attached to them. Uh, Mossy, anything uh, that you want to say before we go? Uh, No, uh, we ironically have a conference call with the Costa Rica under 23 team, which faces the U.S. on Thursday, which starts in one minute. So if we don't wrap this up soon, we're going to be late for that call. (laughs) I hate being late. So with that, I will bid you adieu. We will see you again next week here on the State of the Union podcast. And as always, size the day.